Well, good morning, guys. Welcome, welcome. I want to welcome everybody in the room. As usual, we're going to welcome our uh, Thursday night um, Burleson group. I got to get these straight. Our Friday morning Granberry group and our Sunday night men's group who meets in Fort Worth. And then everybody else who's streaming online. Um, and I want to welcome all the ladies who stream online. Um, it's hilarious how many women come up and take materials on Sunday and I'm like, oh, is this for your husband? And they go, no, it's for me. So uh, we do have a lot of ladies who are joining us in the study of Genesis, so they're welcome, um, which means I have to watch what I say. Well, if you haven't heard, Mitchell and Haley had their baby uh, late Friday night, about 11 o'clock, um, Gregory Jude Doris. They're going to call him Jude, and um, nine pounds, two ounces, 21 inches, so he uh, he came out a big boy. So uh, they're uh, enjoying him, and uh, Mitchell will be back uh, soon, sooner than he thinks. Um, but uh, we're, we're making it without him, but uh, we're happy for them. So just be praying for them. Uh, she did have to have a C-section, so she's got some healing uh, that needs to take place. But everybody seems to be doing great. So mother-in-law's here, so Mitchell's probably not doing that great, but um, she's living with him right now. But uh, that's a big help. Well, I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to jump into uh, this lesson, and uh, we're going to go into chapter 3, which we're all familiar with, at least we think we're, we're familiar with it, but chapter 3 of Genesis, the fall. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this morning and for the cooler weather, and uh, fall is here, and we're grateful for it. And I pray, Father, as we dig into this chapter today, that you would open our eyes to see things maybe we've never seen before or see them from a different perspective. Uh, Lord, I thank you that your word is so alive, it's so rich, it's so deep that we never can fully exhaust it. And thank you for the way you've been speaking to me through it, and I pray that uh, you would do the same thing for every guy in this room, everyone who's participating in this study, that they would see you in Genesis chapter 3. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Well, before we kind of get jumping into this this morning, I, I, I want to invite you to take advantage of the devotionary that I wrote on Genesis. Uh, that's, that's not a plug for me. It's just that uh, I was reading back through it yesterday, and it's, it's lengthy. It's over 600 pages long, longer than the book itself. But um, one of the things that it, it will do is it will go deeper into some of these chapters that, that I can go into uh, because we're, we're now getting into territory where we're having to take bigger chunks of Scripture and I can't deal with every verse and, and every situation that these chapters hold. So the devotionary is a great way of going a little bit deeper because I take smaller chunks and expand on them. So I encourage you to do that. And then what I want to do to set up this morning is that we're, we're now entering into some familiar territory, as I stated earlier. Uh, we've heard this story before. We've heard sermons preached in this story but I, I want to remind us and, and give you kind of some points of clarification as we get ready to jump into this. As we've done all along for the last three weeks, we're going to read this story from the perspective of the Israelites. Now, what do I mean by that? The book was written by Moses for the Israelites. And so it's part of the five books of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And it was written for them prior to them going into the land of promise, okay? And we need to read it that way. 
Now, that's not to say that there aren't things in the book of Genesis that maybe they didn't see. We have the benefit of the entire canon of Scripture. So we have Romans, and we have the Gospels, and we're able to look back and see things that they couldn't see. So what I want to do is read it from their perspective. And so in order to do that, we're going to have to put to the side some of the things we know that they didn't know, uh, and, and only try to look at this, how would we have heard these stories? How would we have read this? Because they live prior to the cross, right? They didn't know anything about the cross. They didn't know about Jesus Christ coming in the form of a man and dying on the cross for their sins. They didn't know anything about that. We do because we're on this side of the cross, and that makes a huge difference. They didn't have the New Testament. They didn't have the the entire canon of Scripture. They couldn't go to Romans chapter 5 and read what Paul wrote about the first Adam and the second Adam. They, They didn't have any of that. So they don't have the concepts that we have of a creation, fall, redemption plan of God. And, and that makes a huge difference when you read this. If you came at the book of Genesis as a non-believer, in other words, you knew nothing about Jesus Christ, you knew nothing about the cross, you knew nothing about salvation, and you read the Genesis account, especially chapter 3, it's going to come across as really strange, right? And that's why a lot of people, when they read Genesis, they just totally reject it because they're outside of Christ. They don't know about the redemptive story or plan of God. And so they read Genesis. They go, this is bizarre. It's weird. It sounds like myth. It sounds like a fable. And they just reject it face out of hand. They just don't know this couldn't have happened. It's a story. It's a, it's a tale. It's a myth. But we know because we're on this side of the cross. But again, how did the Israelites hear this? So as I've been studying it this, this week, it's, it just keeps jumping out at me that they didn't have a concept of creation, fall, redemption. It, it wasn't in their vocabulary. We do because we come at this from a cross-centered perspective. We, we read Genesis and we know that all throughout the book of Genesis, it's pointing towards something to come. That something to come is really a someone to come, Jesus Christ, and what he's going to do on the cross. So we tie creation to new creation. We read the Genesis account, and we can't help but see it through the lens of they screwed up, but God had a plan to fix it, Jesus Christ. But again, the Israelites didn't know that. So as they're standing on the edge of the Jordan River getting ready to go into the promised land, and they hear this story read to them by Moses, they don't have this ability to look down the quarters of history and see, oh yeah, Jesus is going to come. It all gets solved in the end. So again, how would they read it? We view this story, chapter 3, the sin of Adam and Eve as the fall. That's, that's how we typically refer to it, right? Um, the fall of mankind. And, and I'm, I'm not here to refute that. I'm not here to disengage with that. But I want us again to look at it a little bit differently. We know in the story, everything goes from really, really good, God said, very good, to what? Very bad. Why? Because Adam and Eve sinned, and they fell from grace. That's one of the ways we refer to the story. It's a fall from grace, the grace of God, the God who made everything perfect, made this garden and placed them in it. They fell from that because of what they did. And we know, as Christians, that there's only one way to fix that problem, Jesus Christ. 
Sin enters into the world, sin screws everything up, and there's only one solution to sin, Jesus. We know that. I believe that. But again, what did the Israelites know about any of this? What did they know about the fall? It's interesting to note that it's not in their vocabulary. You don't see that phrase used anywhere in Genesis. And yet, what do we know from Romans chapter 5? When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. This is Paul's interpretation of, explanation of Genesis. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. For the sin of this one man, Adam, brought death to many. Now, that's, that's a picture of a fall, right? The fall of Adam, the sin of Adam, the sin of Eve created this condition in which death comes into the world. One man brings that to all men, which makes most of us in the room a little angry because why did he screw it up for us? But as I said last week, had it been you, eventually you would have done the same thing. How do I know that? Because you do the same thing today. You, you sin regularly, repeatedly. You rebel against God. You don't always follow his will. And you have the cross and the indwelling Holy Spirit. So he goes on and says, Adam's sin led to condemnation, but God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. Atonement, redemption, sanctification. Even though we are guilty of many sins, for the sin of this one man, Adam, the first man, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now again, my whole point this morning is to get us to understand that we know this. The scriptures are very clear that Adam sinned and the second Adam, Jesus Christ, fixed the problem of sin. Adam brought condemnation, death, separation from God. And Jesus Christ, the second Adam, restores that. How? Through his death on the cross and through us placing our faith in his substitutionary death. In, in no way am I going to diminish that this morning. All I want to do is look at this idea of the fall, what we typically refer to. Is it really a fall? And there's nothing wrong with that phrase necessarily, but, but is what's described in chapter 3 a fall, or is it a decline? A slow, steady, spiraling, spiraling down. And we're going to see as we move through the, the next chapters is that I believe it's more of a decline than a fall. When I think of fall, I think of what happens you know, when you trip and you fall and you go from upright to flat on your face in a matter of seconds. Um, that's a fall. Uh, that's not what's described in chapter 3. It, it's not this immediate cratering and falling down. It's a slow, steady decline. And that's what Genesis really describes as the chapters unfold. So did they fall from grace? Yes. But again, it was, it was slow. It was steady. It, it began in incremental steps that they took. And we're going to look at that. And then what I want us to really see is, did God, as a result of what they did, did, did he abandon them? Did he just go, okay, you screwed up, I'm done, I'm shutting this whole puppy down? Is that what he did? No. It, it continues. He doesn't destroy them. He doesn't... Um, bring death in the sense of immediate cessation of life, right? 
We know death is, is coming. We know that death is going to be part of the plan, but it's not immediate. He allows them to live. So it's, it's really not a picture of a fall. Listen to this. This is by Klaus Westerman. He says, The narrative of Genesis 2 and 3 does not speak of a fall. One should avoid, therefore, a description which differs so much from the text is so inaccurate and deceptive. Now, he's not denying that something happened. He's just denying that description of what happened. It's, it's this cataclysmic fall. Uh, it's, it's not. It, it's a slow, steady decline. And when I think about my life, when I think about my sin, it's usually not something abhorrent and egregious. It's slow and steady, and it takes time. It takes time for me to get away from the Lord. I can start out really well in the morning, and by the end of the day, I've walked away from Him in slow, steady decisions that I've made. That's how sin typically works. But when we fixate on the fall, what happens is we don't see God's grace. See, if I look back at Genesis 3, this side of the cross, looking back in retrospect, and I look at them and I go, look what you did, you fools, you idiots. What I see is the fall, but I don't see God's grace. And yet what's jumped out at me this week is how God continually showed them grace over and over again. And you're going to see it in chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, all throughout the book of Genesis, the grace of God, the grace of God, the grace of God. That's really the story of Genesis. Westerman goes on and says, the alienation from God does not mean a definitive separation. They are going to get alienated from God, and that's going to become clear, but they aren't separated permanently and completely. God drives them out of the garden but leaves them with life, and by giving them a commission outside the garden, he gives meaning to their alienated existence. I use this phrase a lot, a lot but if I were God, I'd have wiped them off the face of the earth. If I were God, I was holy, I was righteous, I was, I do, do everything, everything right, I would have just said, okay, I gave you everything you needed, I put you in this perfect place, and you snubbed your nose at me, you've turned your back on me, you rebelled against me, and therefore I'm done with you. That's not what God does. And we, we blow right past that when we read this story, we really do. So let's look what, what happens. We ended with man being made last week, and now we're going to see the rest of the story. It says in verse 15, of chapter 2. The Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. God makes it really clear, right? He puts him in the garden and he says, everything's yours, including the fruit of the tree of life, which will extend your life, which will give you eternal life as long as you eat it in my presence. But this one tree you can't eat because if you do eat it, you're going to die. Who does he tell that to? Adam. And that's significant because Eve doesn't yet exist. So Adam's the one who gets this command. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So now we're getting into the territory of God's going to make this woman. So what's he say? He says, it is not good. It's funny how many people get twisted off and they begin to say, well, wait, I thought everything was good. I thought everything was very good. Now he says, it's not good. How can it not be good when God just said it is very good? Well, you got to stick to the timeline. This takes us back to day six, right? Day six is when he completes everything. Day six is when he says it's all very good. 
but we're early on in day six, and he's made Adam, but he's not yet made Eve. So he's got the man, but he doesn't ha- he's not yet made the complement to man. That's, that's why he's not yet declared everything very, very good. And, and, and we read the, these passages, and we don't really connect the dots, and we get the timeline all screwed up, and then we think the Scriptures are faulty, and they're not. It's just the way the story is being told. Something's missing. What's missing? It's the woman. Man, Adam, is not yet complete. God has something else in store. And once he fulfills that missing element, that's when he will say, it's very good. See, we know in chapter 1, verse 27, he always intended to make what? Male and female. A a matching pair. Complementary. One can't exist without the other. And that's exactly what he does. He's going to make them male and female. And that's all he's going to make. Male and female. Okay? And, And so God's going to finish his plan to make these two humans who will make up mankind. It's interesting that, you know, we always think of Adam, Adam in Hebrew, as the name of Adam, and it was, but it's also the name for mankind. It's an all-inclusive term that refers to both men and women, Adam, mankind. And so God had always planned to make this woman. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't an afterthought. It's not like he sat there and went, oh, my gosh. I forgot to make the woman. No, God had planned it. Because here's what he knew. Man can't fulfill, the male version can't fulfill the mandate, right? Be fruitful, multiply. Try that. It it doesn't work. You, You can't pull that off. He couldn't be fruitful and multiply alone. God knew that. God knew that he's gonna need someone to help him do this. That's why that term helper is so much more inclusive than just a companion. There's, there's more built into this. He couldn't fulfill fill the earth with more of his kind. What did God say? Be fruitful, multiply, fulfill the earth with more of you. And, and Adam's probably sitting there going, okay. And he doesn't realize you can't. It's impossible. It, you can't do this. He didn't realize something was missing yet. And yet God's going to reveal them. And what struck me, and I've never looked at it this way before, is that he gets a lesson in the birds and the bees. You know, I I remember years ago, my youngest son plays select soccer. and He was probably 13 years old, and we're uh, getting ready to go to a a soccer tournament out of state. And um, as we're getting ready to leave, my wife goes, this would be a great time to have the talk. I'm like, what? what talk? And she goes, you know the talk. And I'm like, the talk about what? She goes, sex. I'm like, why would this be a good time? She goes, you're going to be in the car for hours. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the last thing I want to do. And I remember it was a beating. I got in the car, we're driving along, and he immediately puts his headphones on. And I'm like, I get a break for a while. And then I think, you know, I got to do this, I got to do this. So finally I tap him and I said, take take the headphones off. And, And he goes, what? I said, I wanted to talk to you about something. And he immediately knew. And he, it was just, I could see the look in his eyes. Like, I do not want to do this. I do not want to have this talk. And we had the talk. And then he immediately put his headphones on. And he never said anything. He never responded. He never said, thanks, Dad. It was just like, whew. Well, God has that same talk with Adam. But he does it in a real interesting way. 
And you may, may never looked at it this way, but this is the way my, my, my brain works. He, he has Adam stand there as he brings all the animals by. Now, you may think, I don't think this happened. Well, I, I, I think it did. How did God do it? I have no clue. But it says, as the animals came by in their pairs, male and female, uh, it says, the man gave names to all the livestock, to all the birds of the heavens, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, how did he know that? You got to think about this. How did he know that each one of those animals, the male had a helper? Now, they weren't, you know, holding hands. They, they weren't, you know, working around in the field. She wasn't carrying his, you know, tools for him. It, no, they were probably making more of their kind. He's watching them procreate. This is, this is how I view this passage. And you may think, you're sick and you need help. But if you've ever stood out in a field for very long, you will see this happen. I've seen it happen in a deer blind you know, just waiting for that buck to come out. And he comes out and suddenly he's doing his business with the does. It's, it happens, guys. It, I think it happened. And Adam's looking going, man, where's mine? I don't have one of those. Where's mine? There's none, of, none of these look like me. Where's mine? There was not found a helper fit for him. So in naming the animals, he gets a biology lesson from God. There's something missing and, and he knows that there's a void in his life, but he can't quite put his finger on it. But he wants this helper. Everyone has one but him. And so God's going to provide him. And God solves the problem that Adam has. And he gives him this incredible helper, this, this, this woman. And it says, God caused a sleep, a deep sleep to fall on Adam. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and he closed up its place with flesh. Ken, do you believe this really happened? Yes, I believe this really happened. How can you believe that? Because my guy can do anything. I don't know why God chose to do it this way, but I believe this is exactly how God did it. And it says that the rib that the Lord God took from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And I love how he responds. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And there's, this is really poetic, but I think it's more like, wow, I now have a helper. And he's not thinking, again, tools and gardening, and I think he's got one thing in his mind, just like most of us almost always have that one thing on mind. He's blown away. And then it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's a lot of sermons preached on this passage about marriage. We're not going there because it doesn't expand on it in this passage. There's no commentary made by Moses about marriage and the marriage union and oneness. It just says the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why does it end that way? Why does chapter 2 end with that statement? They were naked and not ashamed. See, that sets up chapter 3. And what it's telling us is that, again, everything is very good. The very fact that they're naked and they're not ashamed, they're in the state that God designed them to be. There, there's no void. There's no concept of evil at this point. They don't think of themselves as, as being naked. 
and therefore there's no reason to be ashamed of their nakedness. Now, we, we are so driven to think of that as evil. You know, I, I grew up in a Christian home, and, and my mom and dad, um, bless their souls, they were a little bit legalistic, and, and anything having to do with sex, in my mind as a kid, was dirty. Uh, as a matter of fact, I didn't know my parents ever had sex until I was probably in high school. That I, I just had no concept of my mom and dad ever doing that because that was nasty. That was evil. That was repulsive. That's what they do. And yet, they didn't have that concept. See, we've turned something that God has made into something evil. Nakedness had always been a part of the plan. Transparency, vulnerability, openness. And that's part of what's built into that word. It, 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 it can literally be translated, not disappointed. They, they weren't disappointed. Um, I know some of you, at least some of you in the room are like me. When you go to the doctor and you have to strip off all your clothes, we all love that, don't we? You know, to strip off all your clothes in front of strangers. And I've very rarely ever done that and not feel disappointed in what? The doctor? No, me. Gosh, you need to take better care of yourself. You need to drop a few pounds. You, you're carrying way too much weight. And they always put you on the scale too, right? That's always uplifting. Um, but they didn't have that. No disappointment. Everything about them was perfect physically, physiologically, biologically, emotionally, psychologically. Everything is perfect. No disappointment. Completely satisfied. And again, I, I have a hard time getting my head around that, but that's the way, that, the way they were. Nakedness was not a sign of lack. Anytime I go to the doctor and they say, take off your clothes, I feel vulnerable. I, I feel exposed because you are. Yeah, the last time I went to the doctor, which was just a month ago, he goes, do you mind if my, uh, I have a, um, an intern, do you mind if she's in the room while we do the exam? And I'm like, um, no, I, I guess not, you know, but that was awkward, right? To have a female, female intern in the room while you strip off your clothes and stand there for all the exam that doctor's going to do for you. Uh, that's not there. It's, it, there's no sign of lack. Yet, what's about to change? Everything. What does it say in chapter seven or chapter three, verse seven? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Chapter two ends with they're naked and not ashamed. Chapter three, after they eat of the fruit, says their eyes were open and they knew they were naked. Everything's changing. What did they know? What, what did they know? They recognized, they perceived that something was different. What had changed? Nothing. Their bodies hadn't changed. They didn't suddenly put on 15 pounds. They, they, something changed. It's their perspective. Something's different. And that's what begins to happen. That's why I say this is a slow, steady change in their outlook on life. It's not a fall it's a slow, steady way of looking at life in a way that they weren't intended to look at life. And so what do they do? It goes on and says, they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What, what's going on there? They're trying to cover up the nakedness. They're trying to cover up the shame. They're trying to 
fix a problem, a perceived problem that just a few minutes ago was not a problem at all. And that's what sin does, guys. And it says they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. This, this idea of the presence of the Lord is going to jump out in chapter 3 over and over again. They lived in his presence. Now they're trying to hide themselves from his presence. And here's the key. They're now deciding what's good and what's bad. What does Satan offer them? That choice. You get to decide what's good or bad. Isaiah 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 say this, and it fits this story like a, like a glove. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. What's amazing about this story is what Satan is going to offer this man and this woman is what? Wisdom. You will be wise like God, knowing good from evil. That's the whole gist of the story, right? What happens in chapter 3? Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? And we'll get into that in just a second. But I want to go here for just a minute because I think this is huge. You're already jumping ahead of me. How do I know that? Because you know how the story goes, and you've been fed sermons and literature on this topic, and so you already are ahead of me, but don't get ahead. See, there's somebody that shows up, and we automatically think Satan, but what we're told is it's a serpent. So again, don't jump ahead. What does the passage tell us happen? What does it tell the Israelites? It says a serpent. It's a serpent, right? And it literally translates into a snake. That's all it tells us, Nahash. We know that it's crafty, a room, which means he's subtle, he's shrewd. So we've got a serpent who's shrewd, and we know he can speak. He, he speaks to Eve. That's all we know at this point in chapter 3, verse 1. And we don't know where he came from. But we do know he's made by God. That's what verse 1 tells us. The mention of the snake here is almost incidental, according to Westerman. At any rate, we're not to be concerned with what the snake is, but rather with what it says. But what we spend so much time worrying about is the identity of the snake. And, and, and I know it's Satan, right? We've been told that, we've been taught that, and I'm not refuting that. I'm just saying, what did the Israelites think? When they heard that it was a snake, well, they're not unlike you and I. They don't like snakes. I don't like snakes. I don't play with snakes. And so when they hear that it's a speaking snake, it's a little bit disconcerting. But listen to this. The serpent in the Garden of Eden is portrayed as just that, a serpent. Satan does not make an appearance in Genesis 2 and 3. He nowhere appears. He's never mentioned for the simple reason that when the story was written, the concept of the devil had not yet been invented. Now, that doesn't mean Satan is an invented being. He's just an imaginary creature. It's that in the concept of things, in the grand scheme of things, at this point in the Israelites' history, they had no concept of Satan. All they heard when they heard the story was, this is a serpent. While the word Satan appears elsewhere in the Hebrew Bible slash Old Testament, it's never a proper name since there is no devil in ancient 
ancient Israel's worldview, there can't yet have been a proper name for such a creature. So they're not thinking Satan. So as Moses reads this to them, they, they don't jump to, oh, that's Satan. No, it's a talking snake who happens to be shrewd. That's all they hear. And yet, I want you to know, I do believe it was Satan. I, I do believe what we teach as a church, what Christianity has taught for centuries, that this is Satan, but that's not what the Jews heard. I know he's the great deceiver. How do I know that? Revelation 12, 9, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. What I see happening in Genesis chapter 3 is Satan, in some form or fashion, either taking the form of a snake or he's uh, indwelling that snake, is, is there. But again, my point is that's not what the Israelites would have heard. I know him to be the accuser of the brethren. Again, Revelation 12, verse 10. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And I know he's the same one who tempted Jesus in the wilderness. So I know who he is. You know who he is. But all they know is it's a talking snake, a smooth-tongued talking snake. Now, you may sit there and go, well, why didn't this surprise Eve? Why should anything surprise Eve at this point? That she appears made by the hand of God, taken from the rib of this guy named Adam who she's just met, and she sees all these animals, and she's, nothing should surprise her at this point. So had she met a talking animal before? I have no idea, but she's not surprised because what should surprise her in that environment? Nothing. So this snake talked to her. And here's what's interesting. He's part of God's creation. It it tells us in verse 1 that he's shrewder than all the other beings that God had made, which infers that he's been made by God. The snake has been made by God. And again, I've never looked at it this way before. I always envisioned Satan disguised as a snake. But again, Satan was created by God too, according to the Scriptures. Don't overlook the fact that this is a created being. Why should she not trust something that God has made? Why should she be surprised if this snake talks to her? Nothing was surprising at that point. It says the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. He's created. He's part of God's creation. So here's what jumps out of me. To Eve, the serpent was just another one of God's creatures, which gave him credibility. And it's interesting to note that a crafty and subtle created being was the one who created doubt in God's child and caused her to question God's word. And that's still how it works. Think about this. This talking snake created by God begins to question God in front of this woman. And that's how the enemy still attacks you and I today. What do I mean by that? through an atheistic scientist who doesn't believe in God, but who will propagate his ideologies and his explanations of the creation of the world, leaving God out of the equation, and we buy into it. And I'm not telling you to discount all science. That's not my point. It's that he's a created being made in the image of God. He doesn't believe in that God, and then he tries to propagate truths about all things to you, and we believe them. Why? Because he has a white lab coat and he has multiple degrees. How about this, a godless politician or bureaucrat? 
who will spout all kinds of ideologies and try to get you to buy into his policies and his, his solutions for the world's ills, and yet he doesn't believe in the God who made him. An elite, an ideologically driven academic, professors who've got tenure at schools and they're teaching garbage that, that contradicts the word of God and our kids are getting fed this stuff and we seem to believe, well, they're better educated than I am. Created by God, but spouting information that contradicts God. And then even liberally minded theologians. And they're all over social media. That's what bothers me the most about the technology that we now can avail ourselves of is that you can go and watch sermons by virtually anybody anywhere in the world with any viewpoint that's contrary to Scripture. And, and then say, well, I, I, I had a quiet time. I, I read this blog by so-and-so or I watched this sermon by so-and-so and they are totally contradictory to the Word of God. So it's all around us. What began in the garden is still going on. We find ourselves easily led astray by those who come to us as God's creatures, but who deny God as their creator. And they all appear as talking serpents, smooth-tongued and easy on the eyes. We don't, we don't listen to the, the ugly and the hideous. We listen to the, the beautiful, the charismatic, the talented, those who look successful, but they all sell doubt, deceit, and ultimately death. That's, that's really what Genesis chapter 3 is telling us, that nothing has changed. It's the same today. So what goes on? How did this talking serpent do this? He begins with, did God actually say? He begins with raising doubts about the word of God. You shall not eat of the tree of the garden, any tree in the garden. Did God really tell you you can't eat of any tree? And he's, he's raising doubts in the minds of this woman, and she begins to try to debate with him. She goes, no, 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 we, we can eat of the trees. We, we just can't eat of that one because if we do, we'll die. Oh, and we can't even touch it. She, she adds to the command. She adds to the prohibition. She makes it worse than it really was. But notice that he, he begins with, did God really say? Would, would God really deny you access to that tree? See, his identity is really not relevant. It really doesn't matter if it's Satan or just a talking snake at this point. What's important and integral is what he says, how he says it, what is he doing. He's mis- misrepresenting the words of God. What do all of those people do, the atheist scientists, the, the agnostic academic? What are they doing? They all question the Word of God. They want you to doubt that this really happened, that sin is a real thing, that there is such a thing as a male and a female, two genders. No, there's 84 of them or 139 of them. They, they want you to believe that you have the right to be whatever you want to be. That's what this story is all about. They raise doubts about God's goodness, that your God is good, and he put you here for a reason. And then they refute God's intentions, that he wants to bless you. He wants to multiply you. He wants to increase your number on the earth. He wants to spread his glory everywhere through you. That's what he does. And then he says this. He says, you will not die. Directly refuting what God said, if you eat of that one tree, you will die. No, you won't. You won't die. As a matter of fact, you'll be like God. God's wrong. God's a liar. God can't be trusted. God's 
keeping something from you. You will be like God if you will disobey God and eat of that tree. What is sin? Sin is basically you deciding that God said this, I want to do this. God said, don't, I'm going to do it. God says, refrain from that, I'm going to march right into it. It's you deciding what's best for you rather than what God says. And what happens? She, she, she looks at this fruit, and it, it looks desirable. It looks appetizing, and it, it seems to have everything she wants. And so she eats it, and then she gives it to her husband, and he eats it, and their eyes were open. That is not a positive statement, right? We know how the story goes. That Their eyes are open, but they don't now see clearly. They see things in a confused way. And I, when I read the paper, when I look at the news, when I get on social media and I see what I see, I realize that our world doesn't see clearly. They're confused. They're blinded. They're, their eyes are not open. They're actually blind as they can be. So what do they do? Adam and Eve sew fig leaves together. They make loincloths for themselves because they suddenly know we're naked. Now, what jumps out at me at that is There's nothing wrong at this point for them being naked. Why is nakedness suddenly a problem? Because they don't see clearly. They don't understand what God has done. And and this is huge to me. Nothing has changed. Their circumstances are the same. Their outward condition is the same. The nakedness is not new, right? They were naked before, now they're naked, and they see it and they go, oh, this is wrong. This can't be right. We better cover this up. We better hide this because they're seeing things differently. They're seeing things in a way that they're not meant to see. God had created them naked, and now they've decided that's not very good. It's very, very wrong. And think about that. Our world sees everything in such a skewed, weird way. They they don't see things as they should be. You know, when you read about, you know, Let's just take some of the more bizarre stuff going on. The the, um, drag queen story hours. And we suddenly in our culture think that is to be applauded. That's to be elevated as something good and great and moral and right for our children. And no matter how much you argue against it, they defend it. And you go, how can you defend that? Because they've deemed what is bad to be good and what's good to be bad. And it's all upside down. See, the good had become bad in their eyes. The nakedness, the way God had made them, has suddenly become evil. And they're trying to fix what is God's mistake, they think. Oh, God made us naked. We need to fix this. This is wrong. We need to fix what God screwed up. And it's all upside down. It's all skewed. And what do they do? They tried to hide. They tried to hide from God. Think about that. What's the whole purpose of their being? To have fellowship with God, and now they're trying to hide from God. What is the world doing? Running from God and hiding in their sin, covering up their sin. And again, this this idea of hiding from the presence of the Lord is all through the book of Genesis. People moving away from God. So God confronts them. And when he asks Adam, he goes, "What, what, what are you doing? He says, I was naked and I hid myself. And he goes, did you eat of the tree? And and nowhere along the way does he admit what he's done. 
He goes, how do you know you were naked? What opened your eyes that you now know you're naked? And God knew the answer to these questions. He's not asking for information. He's looking for what? Confession. And this is the subtle snare of self-determination. When you decide, you know what's best. Here's the definition of self-determination. Freedom to live as one chooses or to act or decide without consulting another or others. That's what's happened. Adam and Eve have decided to self-determine their life. They justify their actions as right. We're in the right. We should cover up our, our nakedness. We should do these things. And they refuse at any point in the story to accept guilt or responsibility. Look at this. This, this always blows me away. What does Adam say? The woman you gave me, she made me eat. It's the woman's fault. And guess what? You gave her to me. That was your mistake, God. That's on you. What does Eve say? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Well, who made the serpent? God. They're both blaming God. Neither one is taking responsibility. Refusal to accept blame, a denial of any wrongdoing. Isn't it amazing when you confront people who are living in sin? It could be your kids. They always refuse to accept it's their fault. It, 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 my brother, he. My teacher, she. It's not my fault. I, I, I couldn't help myself. I, I didn't mean to. That's the story of sin. That's the story of Adam and Eve. So what are the consequences? Well, for the serpent, he gets the curse of perpetual ignominy. He, he's going to crawl on his belly. We know snakes crawl on their belly. This doesn't mean the snake used to have legs and lost his legs. Now, there's so many theologians who've built that into the story. All we know is that he's been demoted in some form or fashion, and he's permanently alienated from mankind. Remember, this is talking to a serpent. What about the woman? She gets fruitfulness accompanied by pain, companionship marred by conflict. It says you're gonna, you're gonna, your desire is going to be for your husband, but he's going to lord over you. Does any guy in the room have conflict with his wife besides me? And it's always over control most of the time. Money, um, what we're going to do, what the house is going to look like, whether we should buy that piece of furniture or not buy that piece of furniture. It's all about control. And he says, you're going to be fruitful, like I told you to, but it's going to come with pain. And you're going to fight with the helper I've given you. What about man? Fruitfulness accompanied by toil and pain. You're going to be fruitful. You're going to garden. You're going to do all the stuff that I told you to do, but it's going to be a lot of hard work. It's going to be unceasing labor till the day you die. That's what's going on here. There are consequences to sin, right? And here's the worst of them all. Therefore, God sent him, man, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the garden. He drove them out. Nothing could be more powerful a statement than that. God drove them out of that perfect relationship with him. Didn't kill them. By God's grace, he allows them to live. They still get to be fruitful and multiply. She's going to have pain. He's going to try to garden and everything's going to bring up thorns and thistles and it's going to be the sweat of his brow that they eat, but they still get to be God's caretakers. That's the grace of God. God didn't destroy them. He lets them fill the earth with more of their kind. And we're going to see next week what more of their kind is going to look like. It ain't going to be a pretty picture. And eternal life is now off limits because they can no longer go 
into the garden and have access to the tree of life. So long-term implications, what are they? The couple not only failed to gain something they didn't, do not presently have, the irony is that they lose what they currently possess, unsullied fellowship with God. That's the greatest, saddest statement in this passage. They found nothing and lost everything. Intimacy with God is replaced with alienation from God. And that's going to set up where we go from here. It's going to set up everything we study from this point forward. Alienation from God. We live in a world that is what? Alienated from God. And they justify everything they do as right when God says it's wrong. So here's your questions for this morning. Why would loss of fellowship with God be the worst of all their punishments? Mitchell's wife would probably argue at this point that going through labor is worse than that. But I'm telling you, nothing's worse than alienation from God. What does that look like in our lives? What happens when you get alienated from God, broken fellowship with God? What does that do? Secondly, why is self-determination so dangerous for us as human beings? What's behind our obsession with autonomy, self-control, self-rule? I want to decide what's right. How does that work out for you on most occasions? Then finally, in what ways is this passage an expression of God's grace rather than a reminder of his judgment? Why is it important for us to see God in this light? Why doesn't the story of Genesis just stop right here and, the, and mankind end right here? It's a picture of God's grace, and that's going to be increasingly more significant as we move along. Well, Father, I pray as the men talk around the tables that once again you would bless their conversations, that you would open up their hearts to speak and to share and to encourage one another and to challenge one another that, Father, we can just as easily live like Adam and Eve. We can, we can be self-determining, autonomous, and want to rule our own lives and do things our way. But, Father, we are to be light in the midst of the darkness. We are to be those who live in relationship with you and exhibit what it means to have a right relationship with you in the midst of a dying, blinded generation. Lord, help us to shine brightly. Help us to exhibit what we know about God to all of those who have not yet met him or believe in him. And I pray all this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.